We handed up page 11 for anybody that might be joining us at, uh, presently or in the future on the Internet. Our notes are available on, the, on our church website under View Our Documents. You see my name, Don Hewitt. And if you go in there, you can find the one on Understanding the Gospel of John. And it's up to page 11 in our notes. We may not get there today, but uh, we're starting on page 9. Uh, notes in the back, Pastor, on the back chair. So as we begin this morning, we're going to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump back into the study of the book. Father, once again, we're thrilled to have the privilege of being here. We're thrilled to know that we still have the opportunity to preach and teach without too much governmental interference at this point. And we know that that may not be the truth, may not be the case in the coming years. It may at some point change. So, Father, we are well advised to take advantage and to take the opportunity to present the Word of God as best we can, as clearly as we can, taking it literally, Father. And we know that as long as we take this book literally, we're far more likely to get it accurately. And, Father, though perhaps the world won't like it, those who are your children will appreciate understanding your Word. May we be those that are taught by the Holy Spirit today, we ask in our Savior's wonderful name. Amen. So we are on page 9, and we are in a study on how the Apostle John presented Jesus Christ near the end of the first century, and this becomes very important because, uh, as we've mentioned a number of times in the last months, the presentation that John makes shows you the problems that existed. Whenever a man preaches in a church situation, if he sees doctrinal problems or needs, that is where that person is going to logically go. The Spirit of God usually will direct you right over there, and whatever that need is, whatever that doctrinal problem is, that is what the pastor or the teacher will be led to address. So when you look at John, you see that near the end of the first century, he is very much taken, even a casual reading through the, the Gospel of John will see that the the constant repetition of the deity of Christ, the full deity of Christ. If we read through the Gospel of John and miss that, we should read through it again until we see it, because virtually every chapter in this Gospel has some mention, some evidence, some statement about the fact that he is fully God. And it's just, it's an over, it's, it's like the epistle of 1 John, where he keeps coming back to love one another. He keeps coming back to that theme and hammering that theme. And the reason he did is because... People needed to love one another, and they were not doing it then. And, of course, that's a problem even today. So whenever you see someone addressing a problem like John does, this shows you what the condition of the early church was. And, of course, we did quite a bit of work on that, and we're not going to belabor that again. But uh, when we see what the church was like, uh, we see, honestly... The same kind of problems today. And it's, it's, it's not a stretch of the imagination, and it's not stretching the facts to say that the problem that the early church had, one of the major problems that it had at the end of the first century and ever since, has been understanding the full deity of Christ. It has been a problem then. It is a problem today. If you listen to a lot of preaching, they may talk about Jesus as being God if they're fundamental or evangelical, but the way they present him, it's as though he's somewhat limited. And they don't seem to recognize what John emphasizes is that he was not limited in any way. Because the Gospel of John starts off. You remember how it starts off in John chapter 1? We might as well turn there because we're going back to John 1. 
the way, the way that this one is presented, it's not a limitation. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't see any coincidence at all in the reason that he was referred to as the Word. It's in the beginning was the Word. Now, he could have said the second person of the Godhead. He could have said the Son. He could have said the Son of God. But he chose the Word. And the reason he chose the Word was because this is the name of the second person of the Godhead in eternity past before the decree. He became the son in the decree. It didn't change anything about him. It gave him a new function in the decree. He took a function, a voluntary function of subordination to the Father. But when John starts off by saying the word, he's setting the tone at the very first verse that this is about one who is completely, fully, thoroughly deity in every sense of the word. And it was undiminished by his ministry on earth for those three years he was here. It was not changed in the slightest. And so John's driving home an important point. And I, sub- I submit to you that the, the Gospel of John is every bit as up to date today as it was when it was written because we see the same problems. Listen to some of the Gospel songs that are presented and how Jesus is portrayed. Listen to some of the messages that are preached if you can do it. Now, I, I know some, uh, sometimes guys will do it. I know Pastor has done it and he's found his hackles were slightly elevated. And I've done it a few times and... Uh, I could lose my sanctification over what was said because it's just some of the things that they say is just so terrible. Uh, pages, uh, page on, notes on the back chair for Troy. Notes for t- Sunday school on the back chair right behind you. So I don't want to ride a hobby horse, but I, I, can, I can tell you that what we hear today shows a great lack of knowledge and understanding of, of what God is like in general but the Son of God in particular. And throughout the church, when we go into next, next quarter, we're going to have a course on church history in our evening school, and you're going to find out that the heresies that showed up early, almost all of them dealt with, guess what? The deity of Christ. Who, who was he? Was he really God, or was he just man that appeared to be God, or was he something else? And all of the early heresies primarily focused upon recognizing who he was. And make no mistake, that's exactly where Satan would like to go first. He's got to do something about how people see the second person of the Godhead, how they see the eternal word. So in going through, back in the study of John then, we were looking at the introduction, and as we've mentioned a number of times, the Gospel of John is unique in that it does have an introduction that outlines what he's going to say. And as I, say all, as I say all the time, I wish the other writers of Scripture had done the same thing, that they would give an introductory outline of what they were going to talk about so you could see it. And John does that perfectly. He summarizes. If you want to summarize the ministry of Christ and his relationship as he came to the planet to someone else, you couldn't, you couldn't do any better than come right here to the Gospel of John and look at the first 18 verses because you have a beautiful summary of what he was going to do. It summarizes things so succinctly that only, as only John can do it, uh, I, I marvel at the simplicity. I've heard it said before, and I think it's true, that John has the simplest Greek, and he definitely does, but has the most profound and deep truth of the New Testament writers. And I think he does, because I believe he goes beyond John, or he goes, rather John goes beyond Paul and Peter in some of the depth and some of the understanding he has in the nature of deity, especially in the second person, the Son. Now, in our, in our outline, in our section, we were up to point E on page 9, and we're looking at the response that the people of Israel had toward Jesus. Now, that starts back on, on page 8, 
where we talked about how the word was rejected by his people. And it's, there's no question, if you go back to John chapter 1, and let's begin reading at verse, uh, well, let's begin at verse 6 of John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lightens every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave a power to become the sons of God, even to them that are born, or even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of that, the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I have my assistant speaker again this morning. Good morning, little girl. My granddaughter. I predicted this would happen. Oh, she doesn't want to leave. <laughs> okay, pretty girl. Uh-oh. I always look forward to that. I, I knew that. I told my wife this morning, she's going to come in and do that. And she did. Not that it hurt my feelings. <laughs> but now in, in, verse, in verse 10, there's just a, there is a, verse 9 we should say something. It says, the light, the true light that lightens every man that comes into the world. That might cause some people problems in understanding. How is he the light that lightens every man? Well, it's, it's talking about potential. He has the potential to lighten everyone. If you want knowledge about God, Jesus Christ has the potential to bring that knowledge. And that's what it's talking about. And in verse 10, we mentioned, and this is something that is helpful for Bible study. Uh, we've pointed out before, and it's, it's very true, that words can be used in more than one way in Scripture. And this is an unusual verse because it shows at least two, and I believe three ways, that the word world was used. Because it says, in verse 10, it says, he was in the world. Now, it's obvious that he's talking about, he's on the planet Earth, isn't he? When Jesus was here, he, he wasn't out in outer space. He was here, and the Word was made by him. Now, here it could be just the planet, but I think when you use the word world, the world just means, the word means an organized system. I believe what it means is you could translate this. He was in the world, and the universe was made by him. So I think there's two different ways. He's talking about the planet, but he's talking about the whole system. All of it was made by him. And... The world knew him not. Now, I don't think that he called upon the rocks to repent, and I don't think he called upon the stars of heaven to change their ways. But he did talk to people. So you have world used here of talking about the, all, all of the aggregate of humanity, of humans, of people, the world of human beings. So you have three uses of the word world in one verse. So when you read scripture and you see things, be careful that you understand that words can be used in more than one way, and, and double-check yourself. Check other verses, and I recommend constantly to people, if you don't have Esword, you should have it, because whenever you study, if you really want to do some study, Esword gives you the, the opportunity to put on what they call King James Plus, and it gives, num it gives Strong's numbers after every word, every word in the Bible. And if you see a word like world, there'll be a number G, I don't remember what it is behind it. You can right-click on that and see every place it is used, and you can see, yes, it is used in more than one way, and you can see it. Many, 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 many years ago, I did a, and I, I don't know if I still have it, 
I typed it out back in the pre-computer days of all the ways world is used, and it's used like six or seven different ways in Scripture. And so you can see that if you use eSort. And this is just one illustration that world here is used in three ways in one verse. But the world knew him not. Now, as we mentioned last week, the world did not know him by experience. And this is on the top of page 9 by way of review. Please notice that there are two major words for know that are used in the New Testament. And they're very distinctively different. Because if we don't see that difference, we miss a lot of interesting points and a lot of important points as well. Now, one of them is to know, which means something you're acquainted with a fact. I, I know how electricity works. You flip the switch and the lights come on. I know it. I'm acquainted with it. But do I actually understand the dynamics of what makes electricity work? No, I really don't. No more than I understand nuclear fission. I don't, those things, I'm acquainted with the facts, but I don't understand them and I could never use them. And it's like, uh, now you have an illustration that's kind of, in, kind of humorous. It was, it was intended to be somewhat lighthearted. You know, before a child is born, the, the first-time parent would say, I know all about children. Well, intellectually, you know them. But wait till, the little, wait till little Missy or little Junior is born his age two, and you see the terrible twos. Oh, now you know what children are like. You know by experience, and it's a much deeper, fuller knowledge. And we, we pointed out last week that there are several verses. You can see them in your notes. And the one that I thought was the most interesting is in John 17, where it points out that the purpose of having eternal life is that we can know God, not intellectually, but we can know God by experience. Now, Paul is going to tell you how that's done. It's done by having Christ in you living out through you, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit reveals the character of Christ, and you actually are having God live through you. And it's, an, it's, it's something that can happen, and after it's happened, you can look back and say, that wasn't me that did that. I, I was the one. Yes, I was here. I was the one that did it. But there was something that was different about me. There, there was, it wasn't me that did that. And you actually have experienced the life of God. Now, it may sound, it may sound hard to believe if, if you've never done it. But trust me, there are many of us that have. I think Pastor and Scott... Courtney, and maybe some of you others have had times when the, the Holy Spirit produced love in you for something, and you did something or said something in such a way, you couldn't have ever done it. You would have never done it like that before. But all you cared about was meeting someone else's needs, and you, there was a different kind of love. Something came out of you that was not there, that would not you normally come out of any human being. And that's how you experience the life of God. Now, this is the state of Israel. This is on, now we're back to page 9 and point E. This was the state of Israel. They didn't know by experience he was the promised Messiah. Now here again, like we said, the distinction in these words is important because the people were acquainted with the fact that he claimed to be Messiah. Now let's look over John chapter 9. I have two references here. Let's look at John 9 first. In John chapter 9, <coughs> you can see the leaders of Israel, they understood. It's funny that they kept coming back to him. In the 10th chapter, they're going to come back to him and say, tell us who you are. Tell us if you're the Christ. Well, they wanted, to, wanted him to say so, so they could find some way of twisting that somehow. But what does it say here? Well, let's look back at John chapter 9. And uh, beginning at verse, let's say verse 17. Let's, let's start there to get the context. They say unto the blind man, what sayest thou of him that he's opened your eyes? He said he's a prophet. But the Jews, now remember in John, the Jews frequently refers to the religious leaders. You can see that out of the seventh chapter. 
the Jews, the religious leaders, did not believe concerning him that he'd been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received the sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means now he sees, we know not, nor who has opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews, the leaders, had already agreed, notice, had agreed already, that if anyone should confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So did they know Jesus was claiming to be the Christ? Sure they did. They absolutely knew it. And you see that back in, in the seventh chapter, too. Back in, this is, this is uh, as I remember, this is somewhere near the middle point or just beyond the middle point of his ministry. In John chapter 7, uh, beginning of verse 25, then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing. Do the rulers, now there you notice, now it's identified clearly, the rulers, the religious leaders, do the rulers know indeed that this is very Christ? Do they know he's Christ? Even some of the, the people were recognizing it. Now as long as you're in chapter 7, if you look back just a couple verses, you can see that when you see the Jews in the Gospel of John, frequently, not every time, but frequently it's referring to the religious leaders. And you can see it if you look back just a few verses, and uh, verse 11, it says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people. Now, you notice the Jews sought him, and there was murmuring among the people. Now, who are the people here? Are they not Jewish? Yeah, they're Jewish too. But the Jews is a technical term then. There was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said he's a good man, others said, Nay, he deceives the people. But howbeit, no man spoke openly of him for fear of... The Jews. You see it? This is, throughout the Gospel of John, frequently when you see the Jews, it's not talking about just the average, everyday Jewish person. It's talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious overlay that they had made on the, and then their whole society. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> strangely enough, the, they rejected him, and they never knew by experience that he was the Messiah for the most part. But... One of the most intriguing verses in John is in the 8th chapter. I want you to see this. Because I would have guessed, if I was just reading English, without looking, and if I had not looked at this, I would have supposed that the word we're going to see for know means to know by, to know intellectually. But what does it say? <clears throat> well, let's see. <clears throat> verse, <clears throat> verse 25. Let's begin John at chapter 8, verse 25. Then they said unto him, Who are you? Now, we've already seen in the seventh chapter, there's evidence that they knew he was Christ. But they're trying to pin him down. And, and, and Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said to you from the beginning. So they knew, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I've heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Now notice what he says in verse 28. This is probably... One of the most amazing verses, along with John 8, 58, 28, is, is one of the most magnificent, astounding verses in the whole gospel. 
Then Jesus said unto them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am. Please notice he italicized. Leave it out. You shall know that I am, and I do nothing of myself, but as the Father has taught me, I speak these things. Now, that word for know is none other than the word to know by experience. Now, I said leave out that italicized he, and I believe the Jews recognized I am here as a claim of deity, just as they are going to take up stones in 8 verse 58, when he said I am. It's the same expression, I am. You, you've got to leave that he off. That's, you know, the translators thought it belonged there. They thought it would help you to understand it. But it doesn't, because when you see I am, it should trigger you to go back to Exodus 3.14. When the burning bush, the God in the burning bush told Moses that when people ask who I am, you say I am. Not that I am. I like to translate it, I am because I am. It's the uncreated God, the creator of all. He exists because he exists. He exists because of who he is. He's unchanged deity. And when he says, I am, it took the Jews right back to Exodus 3.14. And you ought to write that in here. Just if you forget, write Exodus 3.14 by the end of this verse because it'll take you back. It will remind you that this is an overt, open claim of deity. Now, this, this idea of lift up, by the way, I know in, in modern Christendom, that lifted up, and I gave you the, you can look in, in page 9 and verse C, or point C, lifted up, G35312, and it's hupsao, is not a reference to lifting up his name in praise, but to the cross. Now, if you go back to John 3.14, you can see that. I want you to see that because uh, we lift up his name. It sounds nice, and in the, modern, in the modern context of things, I guess it's okay to say that but not to say that, that it's found in Scripture when you see lifted up, because that's not how it's used. In John chapter 3, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, when that serpent was lifted up, it was, it was on a stave. It was lifted up. It was nailed to something, wasn't it? So if he's going to be lifted up, he's going to be suspended on a cross, and not in a good way. It's not something that you would want. I wouldn't volunteer. Then look over to John chapter 12. You'll see it again used that way. John chapter 12 and verse 34. Beginning at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And, if, and I, if I be lifted up, there it is, lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. What does lifting up mean? He's talking about the cross. The people said, answered him, We've heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. How, how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So they didn't understand. They didn't see that he was going to be lifted up or put to death. So he's not talking back in John 8, when you've lifted up. He's talking about what's coming very shortly. He's talking about his coming crucifixion when you've lifted him up. Now, you'll notice the arrow on page 9. While it's hard to believe, Jesus said that when he was lifted up on the cross, some would know by experience that he was the I am of Scripture. They would know by experience 
They would know. Would they still go ahead with this? This is the hardest thing. This is why this is such a phenomenal verse. They knew. They knew by experience when they put them on the cross. There were some that knew it, and they still went through with it. They knew who they were killing. They knew that it was God in flesh. They somehow understood it. They somehow knew. He said, you shall know it. Now, he didn't pick the word to know, to be acquainted with the facts. He said, you're going to know by experience. Let me suggest to you, I can show you at least one place that they did. Let's go over to John chapter 18. I always used to wonder about this when I was a young believer, and I never really understood a lot of these things. But uh, by the grace of God and study, I've begun to see it. And I think there's an answer to it, and I think the answer to it is found back in John 8. Beginning at verse 1 of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Sidron, where there was a garden into which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, who betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Now, Judas then, having received a band, now you notice it's a band of men, a band and officers, so it's a group of, like a militia, a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees cometh there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth, and he said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am. Now notice that he is italicized. Leave it out. This is Exodus 3.14. He said unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Oh, they're a bunch of clumsy oxes, right? No, they weren't the clumsy oxes. When he said, I am, what did he do? He showed just a little bit of his power. Bam! He knocked them over. He said, I am, and he showed it right then and there to these people. Did they know by experience who it was? Well, they should have. And I'm sure some of them recognized that he'd been saying this, and it's for real because he spoke, and bam, down they go. So yes, it did happen. Let me suggest to you that some know by experience, I think there's another person in there. I think there's a young person named Saul who's going to be in there, who's going to fight against this. Because when you look at his conversion in Acts 9, and Courtney's covered this before and done a marvelous job. Courtney's done a terrific job in, in, in Acts. He really has. And I, I, I applaud him. It's, a, it's an interesting book to teach. It's somewhat difficult unless you take it literally. And of course, I hope you appreciate it. Courtney's done a terrific job. And I can say that because, you know, I was one of the teachers in seminary when he was there and I saw him change. And boy, this, this guy's become, he's a teacher. Now, I hope I'm embarrassing him because, <laughs> no, not really, but... I think he deserves credit. And I, I think once in a while everybody should get a little credit when they do a good job and he deserves it. But when you see this, this man, John, this, this Paul, when Jesus speaks to him, he said, I'm Jesus. And then he tells him what he's going to do. Now he doesn't tell him about his death on the cross. He doesn't tell him a lot of things. Why? Because I think this young man Saul already knew who it was. But he wasn't going to bow the knee and do what, he, what Jesus said until Jesus knocked him off. Now, he, you think he wasn't stubborn. Well, then I submit to you Acts chapter 21 when he's told repeatedly not to go to Jerusalem. And he said, I'm going anyway. 
Yeah, he's a stubborn man. And I tell you, Pastor, he makes me feel good because I'm stubborn, but I, if I feel I'm really bad, I say, well, here's Paul. I say, ah, there's somebody that was worse than me. Now, he was a stubborn man. And he is the only person that ever was dealt with by Jesus Christ personally concerning his salvation experience. You look and you find no one else. So I suggest to you that there was something more there. I suggest he was one. He may have been in the garden. He may have been there and, and been one of the ones who was knocked off his feet. And he realized, we're not dealing with just a man. But the strangest thing still is, and I, I have a hard time accounting for this, they knew, some of them knew who he was, and they still insisted on putting him to death. Now, when people say, when people say that men choose God, they don't know what they're talking about because I see what humanity is like. When it says in Romans 3 that no man seeks after God, and then it says in Romans 5 that they can't God as an enemy, they hate him. If you think they don't, then just remember that some of them knew by experience who he was, and they still put him on the cross. Why wasn't there a groundswell among the Jews and saying, wait a minute, we can't do this. We better listen to who this one is. We better go stop and think. It looks like he is the Messiah. We better No, there was no groundswell. All they said is, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Boy, talk about a dumb thing to say. <laughs> Boy, that blood's been on them for a long time, and it still is. Well, having said that, let's go back to John chapter 1, verse 10. So we know, we know that the, the remarkable things in this ministry, the world knew him not, there were some that did. And then it says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well now, that sounds like 100% rejection. But there are going to be several places in the Gospel of John where you're going to see a few, probably just a very few, but a few did believe in the deity of Christ. So when it says, that they received him not. He's, that's talking about overall the nation. The nation as a whole rejected him. And for him to be Messiah, the, the religious leaders and the majority of the people would have had to accept him, and that didn't happen. So it was safe to say, as a general overview, as a general summary, the, his own people didn't receive him. There were a few that did, yes, and, but the exception doesn't disprove the rule. I know some might pick on this, some that are critics of the Bible, but as a rule, the Jews didn't do it. Now, there are places where they did, and uh, you remember, and this is on page 10, remember that during Christ's ministry, what they had to believe was that he was the I Am. Now, it's amazing that people could know that and not believe it, as John 8 says. But if you look at John chapter 8 and verse 24, you'll see that the message, the message can change, but the means doesn't. And what we mean by that is that the message of salvation may be a little different than it was during his earthly ministry today. Today, the basis of salvation and the basis of salvation during his earthly ministry and the basis of salvation anywhere you go in the Old Testament is always based upon the finished work of Christ. But the message has not always been the same as the means. Today, the message is the means. It's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 is the message for salvation. It's the means of salvation from God's point of view. But during Christ's earthly ministry, it was a little different. He couldn't preach his death, burial, and resurrection while he was alive, could he? How could you do that? That wouldn't make any sense, but what could he preach? And you think that this is easy to believe. Well, look at what it says in John 8, 24. 
I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins for you, if you believe not that I am. Leave that he off again. This is Exodus 3.14. If you don't believe that I am the God of the burning bush, you'll die in your sins. Well, that sounds to me like that's salvation. Now, from God's point of view, it is based upon 1 Corinthians 15. But at this time... This message was you had to believe he's God in flesh. And you say, well, that's, 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 that's not nearly as hard to believe. Wait a minute now. Do you think it would be easier to believe this message than it is for us today to look back nearly 2,000 years ago and say, this man hung on the cross, he took my place, he was God in flesh? Is that any harder to believe or any easier to believe than having a man living and standing in front of you that looks like you, looks like any other Jewish man, and say, he's God? Which one's harder to believe? I would say they were both almost impossible to believe if God didn't open somebody's eyes because they had to look at him and say, this is the God of Exodus 3. This is the God of the burning bush. This is all eternal God in flesh standing in front of me. Now, your, your eyes would deceive you. You, could, you. you couldn't see that. And that's no easier. In fact, that might even be harder to believe than it is to believe in the work of the cross. Because they, you can see with your eyes something. You can see there's a man standing there, and you're telling me this is God in flesh? I don't believe that. Well, most people didn't believe that. And only those to whom, as Jesus himself said, the Father was going to reveal them. So, if, you look on, if you're still in chapter 8, you're going to find out that, ah, there are going to be some that respond. And it's nice because you'd hate to think in terms of Christ's earthly ministry. I know he's going to be rejected. And I know he had to go to the cross. But you think there have to be just a few people that get it right. And there are. And it makes you feel a little bit better. If you look at John now, he's saying these things. It's, it's amazing to me that it follows verse 28 where he says, You shall know after you've lifted me up, you'll know by experience that I am. And of all things, right after that, he continues on, verse 29 of John 8, saying, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I always do those things which please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Now, many believed on him. What, in context, believed what? Many believed on him. What did they believe by context? By context, you would have to go back and say they believed something. What did they believe? Something he had just said. What, what was that? They believed I am. Context demands that. Don't, you know, people will lift verses out of context and look and say, oh, many believe. Oh, that's great. They believe the gospel. No. Keep it in context. He said to them, you shall know that I am. And he said some other things. And many believed on him. Believe what? They believed him when he said, I am. They believed he was God in flesh. That's salvation at that time. That was what it took at that time to be saved. These were individuals that were saved. Now it says many. Now... I have a problem with that word sometimes because I, I put it in your notes and you can, you can check it out. This word many, to me, my definition of it, it means something greater in size or number than one would expect. Now let me illustrate it this way. If you were to go to the downtown busy street, what's, in, what's a busy street in downtown Orlando? I'm not familiar with the city. So if you go to Orange Avenue at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock on, on Tuesday morning, would you expect there to be a lot of people and cars out? You'd expect there to be a whole bunch. There'd be hundreds, literally hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands, I don't know. But what if you went to there at 3 o'clock on Wednesday morning and you saw eight people out there on the corner standing? 
you might say, hey, that's, that's, there's a lot of people. There's many people. There's, why are there so many people over there? Well, it's, it's not an absolute thing. It's more than you'd expect. Why are we saying that? Because I believe when it says many believed on him, I think that wasn't, there wasn't a substantial number, more than you might expect. But it probably wasn't 100. It probably wasn't 1,000. It probably wasn't 500. It might have been 20. It might have been 25. It might have even been 15 or 10. I don't know. But I suggest it wasn't a huge number. It could be deceptive. Now, I could be wrong. But as I look at this many, it's a number that it just depends on what you're expecting to see. If there were 10 people, 15 people, given the, given the overall how this chapter has gone on, please notice what we said in here. The, they were harassed so much. The ones who believed that he was the Christ were not large in number. If you go back to John chapter 7 where we just were, let's read it again. It looks like there might have been some that believed it, but there was a pretty much split decision who he was. And this is over a year and a half into his ministry. This is getting towards the latter stage of his ministry in John chapter 7, verse 10. But when his brethren had gone up to the feast, those are his human, his half-brothers, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among him, among the people concerning him. For some said, He's a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceives the people. So you see, some said this, some said that. Some said he was a good man. Some said he deceives us. He's, uh, he sees people, and they were, un- they were not decided upon who he was. Then again, if you go down to verses 25, you see it again. Then it says, Some of Jerusalem is not he- this he whom they seek to kill, but lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know that this is indeed is the very Christ? Now you notice that some of them of Jerusalem said this, just some. Now some is not a very, some is less than many. Many means a number larger than expected. Some just means a few people. So only a few people thought that they might be the Christ. Then they said, "Howbeit, when this man, we know this. When this, uh, howbeit, we know this man whence he is. But when Christ comes, no man knows whence he is, which is kind of strange because he was supposed to come out of Bethlehem and so forth. But so you'll notice that there doesn't seem to be a big consensus of who he might be. Just some, and out of that some that seem to recognize many of those some. So you have a small number and a larger than you'd expect number out of that small group. So what I'm saying is it probably wasn't a great, great number of people. But you'll notice what happens when, he, when, when, the, when you see verse 30. Many believed on him. Now were these people saved? Well, look what Jesus said unto them. Then Jesus said to those Jews which, who believed on him. Now here you see Jews used, and it's not referring to the leaders. Because I don't think this would involve the religious leaders. There may have been some in there, but I question that. Then it said, Jesus, to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. Future tense, you shall know the truth. And the truth in the future, it's future tense, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is something that would be true after Pentecost. This would be something that was true because of the work of Christ, because we are seen in Christ, because we can reckon ourselves dead to our sin nature, and we can escape the, 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 the absolute tyranny of the sin nature. So the truth, you know the truth, it's a body of doctrine that is going to be revealed. Now some have had a problem in verse 33, and it says, They answered, and we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you, you shall be made free? Now, 
some have said, well, no, wait a minute, these people really didn't understand because they say that, well, they answered him. Now, who's they? In this particular chapter, one of the fascinating parts of it is that when Jesus speaks and says anything, he's constantly interrupted, he's heckled, he's harassed. That's what I call persecution. That's what the word for persecution really means. It means to harass. He was harassed. If you think I'm kidding, look at John chapter 8, beginning right back at the first verse. And Jesus went into, unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman taken in adultery and set her in the midst. And they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, wait a minute. Jesus is seated, and people have come to him, and he's teaching them. And what happens? Here they come, right in front of the group, and they harass him. They're trying to put him on the spot. If he says, don't stone this woman, then he's against the law of Moses. If he says, stone this woman, he's against Rome, because Rome would not give the Jews a penalty, the death penalty. They couldn't kill people. That's why they had to go to Pilate to get the sentence on Jesus. So this was a trap they were baiting. But you see what it is? They're harassing him. You're speaking. Now, I don't, I don't know about any of you fellows that have spoken, but I've never had anybody stand up and come up to me while I was speaking and start, now, have you considered this? What about this plight out here? What about, how can God allow this? No. That's, that's the equivalent of what they're doing here. And if you think it stops there, in the 8th chapter, look at John chapter, go down to verse 12 of John 8. Uh, well, let's look at verse 11. Uh, after Jesus said, no man, Lord, the woman said no, said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go your way and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke unto them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, you bear record of yourself. Your record is not true. He said one thing and bam, they jumped, they jumped right on him, trying to discredit him, trying to humiliate him, trying to embarrass him, trying to interrupt him. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I suppose if I was in a public speaking event and I was trying to speak and I kept getting interrupted, after a while, I think I, think I would show you that I still have an old nature. <laughs> I would show you that I have this work of the flesh called temper. And I would probably say some things that would not be very sanctified. But Jesus didn't do that. What was that? I didn't hear it. Yeah. Well, look, look further. If you see this, this, this chapter, I mean, if, if you don't enjoy this chapter, you should read it. And read chapter 6, 7, and 8, because I call this the eye of the storm. This shows you the religious leadership and their relation to Jesus and the confusion of the people and all of the, con- the competition that came along as the Jews were trying to push this man into the corner, trying to belittle him, harass him, get him to shut up and go away, and they didn't succeed. It's a very, very fascinating read, chapter 6, 7, and 8 of John. You ought to read it. Then down in verse 19, uh, let's see, Jesus said, uh, verse 17, It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. They said unto him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You need to know me or my Father. If you, should have known me, if you had known me, which you didn't, you should have known my Father also, but you don't. So there they go again. Now, look a little bit further. Verse 21. Then Jesus said unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me and die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Then the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he said, whether I go, you cannot come. What are they doing? 
Every time he makes any kind of a statement, they jump on it and they harass him. This kind of sounds like a press, sounds like the way the press treated President Trump when he was in office, doesn't it? <coughs> Couldn't say anything without being, have, have twisting it. And so, I believe, therefore, when you go back to John 8.33, and you can look further, of course, there's, there's, there's even more. There's verse 25, and uh, they didn't understand he spoke of the Father to them, and, and they jumped all over him. And verse 48, they, they said unto him, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that you are a Samaritan and have a devil, have a demon? You're a Samaritan, you have a Gentile father, you're a half-breed. Now, I don't know if you, if you remember it, but the Jews didn't like the Romans and the Gentiles. But who did they like the least of all? The Samaritans. So they said, you're a Samaritan. That's about the worst insult. You're not only illegitimate, but your father is a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. Ooh. Now, I would say that verse 33, when they said, We be Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. How do you say you shall be made free? Well, I'll tell you what. These, these, these sound like people that go to public school today that don't know history. Because they didn't know their history. We were never in bondage to anyone. Who's ruling them right now? As they speak, who was in charge of the city of Jerusalem? The Romans. They couldn't put anybody to death. They couldn't do a whole lot of anything without getting the permission from Rome. And it wasn't the last time. They also, the, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom was taken away into Assyria. And the southern kingdom was taken to Babylon, and they were under the dominion there. So this isn't the first time. It's at least the second or more. And yet, you can see who these are. These people are nothing but a bunch of liars. I wonder if they really believed that they were never in bondage to anyone. I wonder if they really believed it. Well... Anyway, so our time, we're going to have to stop here. Our time is up. I just noticed the clock and I was getting ready to go on, but we're going to have to stop and come back to God's provision prior to Pentecost. And there's going to be another section here. This is going to be one of those places where um, if we just take the Word of God literally and look at what it says and compare the Gospels and the Epistles, you'll see that what is here in John 1, 12 and 13 isn't about us. It was a provision made for those who during the earthly ministry, like we saw back in John 8, that have believed. Well, we're going to close here this morning, and you can see, if you read John 6, 7, and 8, you can see what went on. And yet, it's amazing that they still there were going to be some of these individuals who harassed them were probably that were going to be confronted I wonder how some of these people have said these hateful things. They were probably there in the 18th chapter. I wonder how they felt when they got knocked off their feet when he said, I am. I would love to know. That's one of those. There are several times in Scripture I've wanted to be there to witness things that happened. This is probably number one that I would want to see. They knocked him off the feet. What in the world did those people think? These are the ones that have been harassing him in the 8th chapter, the ninth chapter. You'll see it in the 10th chapter again. Oh, yeah. And you'll see it in the 11th chapter, somewhat, right up to the very end. Our Savior went through a lot to bring us salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, once again, we're thankful for the power that the Word of God has. We're thankful for the things that it contains. We're thankful for the truth it tells us. It doesn't leave us uh, to our own imagination. 
It doesn't mislead us in any way. It tells us the things that we need to know, Father, and in such a way that when we take the word literally, it's very simple to see what is being said. And we're thankful, Father, that that is true. May the Spirit of God take these things and may they be relevant to us and may we understand that this one was fully God and fully man. There's no question about it. And if we miss that point, Father, then we have misunderstood the entire Gospel of John. May we not be those that fail to see who this one was. May we not be like the world today that doesn't understand who Jesus is. He is our Savior, but he's very God of very God. And we're so thankful that we understand that. Please bless us now in the service that follows. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen.